Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. So glad you've decided to join me in my home today in McKinney, Texas, and I'm so glad you've decided to join me online, coming from all over the world. God bless you. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church SoundCloud, or whether you're visiting our, visit our website, I want to welcome you. Hello, I'm Pastor Ed, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days, and this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word, and I hope you guys were, are hungry, and you came here for a good message today, and you came here for some food, for some spiritual food, that is. Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which comes from the mouth of God. So, of course, we know that our spiritual man eats by the words of God. So, we're about to read the words of God today. We're going to pray real quick first, and then we're going to get into our message, get into our title in Acts chapter 18. So, if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, please. Let's ask the Lord to help us understand His Word. God, we we thank You so much, Lord, for bringing us here today. We thank You so much, Lord, for what You do for us every day, what You've done for us in the past, and Lord, what we know You're going to do for us tomorrow. For God, You, Your provision, Lord, Your provision, Jesus, You said it. The, the rain, the rain goes on, falls on the good and the unjust, and the, and the godly and the ungodly alike, Lord God. So Your blessings and and your wonderful deeds and your wonderful things you do for mankind are, are, are given, Lord, whether we're right with you or, or whether we're not right with you. Lord, it's just because you want to show us your love in Acts 17 to, in the hopes that we grow for you because, you, you know, we, we recognize that it's you uh, that are, that's given the good things in this life, Lord. So we just pray, Lord God, that you would help us to understand your words today. Help us to understand... Um, what the whole topic and idea we're going to talk about today that comes up in our scripture is, Lord, help us to then uh, make sure that we avoid uh, the, what we're going to talk about today, Lord God. Make, make sure we avoid doing the dangerous things that, that, that we could so easily fall into doing. And help us to do the righteous things, Lord, the things that you would have us to do. So we love you and we praise you and we thank you. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty and precious name. Amen. As I said already, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18. We're going to be in verses 12 through 23 today. The title of our sermon is Vows Are Dangerous. And you already online, you already knew that. You saw that coming in and clicking in. Vows Are Dangerous will be the main, a, a main topic that the scripture is going to speak about today, that we're going to read about today in this section of Acts chapter 18. So if you guys want to join me, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read these verses, and then we're going to talk about what the Scripture tells us. Acts 18, starting in verse 12. You can read along with me, or you can just listen along, whatever you'd like to do. The Bible says this. When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, or Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This Philip persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, that would be to the Roman government, of course, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Verse 17. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat, but Galileo took no notice of these things. Verse 18, so Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren, sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Kenchiria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. But I will return again to you, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed in Caesarea and gone up to and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Perga in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now, before we get on to our main, I would say that the, the, the primary main idea, topic of the whole mess is we have to kind of carry over something from last week something that we saw fulfillment of, something that maybe you thought 
the Bible had a, a contradiction in, something that God sa- said, a promise that he gave to Paul that you see maybe that God broke. Remember in our verses 9 and 10 of last week's message, God told Paul, do not be afraid, You know, telling him to stay in Corinth where he is right here, and do not keep silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. And remember, that was God wanting him to stay in Corinth, where we are still today, where these people attack Paul. So that's the big one. And then I said to you, notice God Almighty didn't tell him that he wouldn't be attacked at all or that anyone wouldn't come against him at all. In verse 10, God told Paul that he wouldn't allow anyone to attack him to hurt him. There was a stipulation on God saying he wouldn't allow anybody to attack him to hurt him because being attacked and or persecuted, remember I talked about this last week, is just par for the course if you are a real Christian, if you are a real true follower of Jesus Christ. But remember, God's emphasis or stipulation to the attack was that he would not allow anyone to attack him to hurt him. Well, we see here God's words to Paul come true in our first verses. Look at verses 12 and 13 again, please. When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. God allowed people in Corinth to come against Paul and to attack him. It looks like God allowed the same Jews, probably the ones that Paul had just, remember, he shook the dust off his clothes against them in our last, in our last section. Uh, they rise up against Paul and bring him to the judgment seat. The same kind that Jesus Christ was brought before to get him in trouble so that they could hurt and kill him. Their charge against him, verse 13, persuading men to worship God contrary to the law. That would be the law of Moses. Okay. Well, of course, Paul was teaching and persuading these people and all people everywhere that he preached to, to worship God against the law of Moses. Remember Matthew 26, 28, Jesus Christ said, I came to, I, I come, or he came then to bring a new covenant between God and man, a covenant with him and man through his blood. And of course, if his new covenant, which was a new covenant, which it was, well, new covenants come with new rules right? New, new rules as to how to honor the new covenant with God, between God and man. And the new rules would be against or contrary to the old rules. That's just common sense, right? If I lay down a new rule and I say this is a new rule in place of the other one, then that means that the new rule probably is going to go against some of the things that I spoke about under the old rule. And this is what happens with the new covenant versus the old covenant, Christ's blood, Grace through faith versus, you know, still a faith, but, you know, not necessarily, you know, the same way. There was no blood of the Son of God. There was just the blood of animals. So it was a whole different covenant. So their accusation against Paul would have been one that would stick. Uh, Paul would not have even been able to argue with them. Their argument towards him or against him was an open and shut case. Paul was doomed for he was guilty of doing what he of what they said he did. And according to God's old covenant law, what were they trying to do to Paul in order for what he was doing, teaching men contrary against God's law? Deuteronomy 13:6. These were Jews from the synagogue. These were religious Jews. And this is what God said to do to somebody that anybody that taught against God's law or told people to go to anything, something against God's law, um, obviously outside of the new covenant, this was under the old covenant, Deuteronomy 13, 6, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. They were looking to kill Paul because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. So here Paul is being attacked by the religious Jews in Corinth and he is on his way to the judgment seat and will be found guilty if they were to judge him upon the law of God, because he was trying to get people to leave the law of Moses, right? And worship God according to the new covenant that God had laid down through Jesus Christ. And of course, he would have been found guilty. But remember, God never promised Paul that he wouldn't be attacked 
or messed with at all, God in verse 10 of last week's message told Paul that no one would attack him to hurt him. That's difference. This was, this was the provision that Paul was looking for here. They had already attacked him, but would God's word to him come to pass? Would they now be able to kill him as they wanted to do? Heavens no. Look at how God fulfills his word to Paul and protects him so that they just attacked him, but they weren't able to hurt or kill him. Look at verses 14 through 17. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, so, so that would be to defend himself. He, was gonna, he, he wasn't going to defend himself, really. He, Paul, as we saw before, he was going to say, oh, I know this is my charge, but, but here's why I'm doing this. Here's why I'm teaching men contrary. Because there was this man, and he was the son of God, and he would have preached Jesus Christ to them. And that wouldn't have been a real defense. He wouldn't have been saying, I'm not guilty. I'm just saying that, hey, this is what I'm doing now. This God changed his covenant. Whether they would have believed or not, that would have been up to them. Right? But, but what happens first before Paul's able to open, right as he's about to open his mouth, here's where God steps in. Galileo, if you keep reading there in 14, who was a Gentile, probably a Roman, a Roman, you know, Gentile kind of leader, said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. 15. But if it is a question of words and names and in your own law, look to it yourselves. Hey, guys. Unless it's wicked crimes done to the Roman Empire or they killed somebody or, or this guy, you know, murdered somebody or this guy, you know, blasphemed Caesar or whatever he did. Unless this guy did something against our Roman laws, I'm not going to, hey, you, you'd see to it yourself. And what he was saying there is you'd do what you were supposed to do under your law. But of course, he wasn't aware, being a Roman, he probably wouldn't have been aware that what they should have done according to God's law was put him to death. And of course, under Roman law, they could not put uh, Paul to death or anyone to death. That was one thing that the Romans took away from the Jews as they subjugated them, being the head over Jerusalem and all of Israel as the Romans did when they came in and conquered. This is why they couldn't put Jesus Christ to death and they had to go to Pilate as well too. For he tells them, I do not want to be a judge of such matters, your matters. I'm a judge of the Roman matters. I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you guys about the Roman way of things. If you want to talk about disputes in your own law, that's, that has nothing to do with me. And the result, verse 16, and he drove them from the judgment seat. He said, get out of here. I don't want to be bothered with your Jewish customs and laws. 17, what, how do the Jews respond? Do they rise up? Do they beat Paul? Do they take Paul and kill him? Well, no, they don't. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, that's kind of weird, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo, the Roman guy, yeah, he's like, ah, he took no notice. That's what the scripture says. But Galileo took no notice of these things. So the end result for Paul, he was attacked but not so that he was harmed or killed, God keeping his word to him. Instead, Sosthenes, this would be the new ruler of the synagogue. Remember, Crispus was the old ruler of the synagogue. And remember, Paul converted him. We've, we, we read of his conversion last week. So if he was a converted Christian, he would, being a Christian, the Jews wouldn't have said, okay, Christian ruler, come on and be the ruler of the synagogue. He would have kind of like bowed out of that position being a Christian. So this, obviously, this guy Sosthenes, he was the new ruler of the synagogue. Right, and Sosthenes takes Paul's place, but they don't kill him. He only gets beaten up because they're probably mad at him. Why are they mad at him? The only reason I can think of as to why they are is because <laughs> he must have been the one that said, Hey, let's get this guy, Paul. Hey, here's this scheme, and I got this scheme, and you know, he you know, he teaches people against God's word, and so you know what? Let's let's bring him before the Romans, and you know, the Romans, they'll take care of him for us. And so they get mad at him because that's the only thing I can think of. He came up with the scheme in the first place, and so the Jews, they come against him and they attack him. They don't end up uh, killing or hurting him. They're just mad at him. They're just like, man, you're, you're, you're stupid. You know, why did you come up with this plan? Now we look like fools before each other and before the Romans. So, and, and moving towards against Paul, so the Jews come against uh, to attack Paul, but they don't end up hurting him, just as God promised him in verse 10. When God says something will happen, or when God says something won't happen. So thus saith the Lord, this will be, or thus saith the Lord, this will not 
happen, then you can take what he says to the bank, right? What he ordains or says he will do, and it is as good as done. Even if he says something's coming in the future, whatever God says is coming in the future, if he says it's coming, then it's done, and that's just that. The psalmist on this matter, Psalm 135, 5 and 6, says this, For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth, and in the seas, and in all the deep places. So even the psalmist agrees, whatever God does, he does. And remember, God told Paul that he would not allow anyone to attack him to hurt him. And this is exactly how God made it to be. They came against him, but they could not hurt him. So not sure if you maybe thought, you know, reading verses 9 and 10, hey, there's a contradiction in the Bible. Hey, God said that nobody would attack Paul, and then here they came to attack Paul. I remember reading this scripture over when I was just a babe in Christ. This would be, you know, 16, 17 years ago when I was working my way through the Bible and reading through the Bible. And I remember reading this, this scripture. God just reminded me of it actually just in this message just now. I actually remember thinking, Hmm, God said that he wouldn't allow anyone to attack Paul, but here they just attacked Paul. That's, I wonder why God, is that, did God not tell the truth? I remember thinking that, and then as I got older in the Lord, as I got more wise in the Lord, as I continued to read the Bible and seek God for truth, God showed me this, this one thing. Don't think uh, don't think just because you read something, just keep reading. Because if you read something and then you seem to read a contradiction, chances are you did not read the whole section before what made you think there was a contradiction or maybe you thought God was a liar or something. Read the whole thing. Read the whole thing, the whole verse or the whole section, and that will usually clear up a lot of contradictions because people just, they see things, and as we read, it's a human thing, we miss things. We read and we read and we read and we brazen over things and we don't read each word and then kind of feed on each word. So FYI, you have to look at contingencies. There's, there's many times there's contingencies in the Bible. I'll never forget me and my family were having a discussion about a, a Bible topic one time and how God had changed his mind of keeping uh, the priests of, of the line of Levi or or the Kohathites on the actual, you know, being God's priest forever. And, and, and I never forget my, my, we were talking about it as a family and, and somebody said, Hey, well, God lied then. God said that these priests were going to, were supposed to be priests forever. And I said, no, 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 you got to be careful. You got to look at stipulations. Yes, God said that this line of people would be priests forever before him, but in the same very next breath or the very next section that God gave, God said, if you keep my words, if you do the things that I tell you to do, if you remain steadfast in me, there's always a stipulation to God's word. God doesn't ever say, oh, you're good, you're done, and then that's it, and then, and then 10 years down the road, you, you fall away from the Lord. Well, God's promise to you is not valid anymore once you walk away, once you stop living in him, once you stop abiding in his word. So always be careful when you're reading the scripture. Always look at stipulations or to read the whole section before you just jump on, hey, there's a contradiction there. Moving forward, where there's zero contradictions in God's word, just remember, read the whole promise with all the stipulations or any stipulations that there may be included into it. After this attack, getting back to Paul, did Paul get upset? Did Paul seem like it flustered him? Did he? Did Paul go, oh man, God, you, you lied to me. You, you, you said I wouldn't be attacked and I got attacked. And did he, did, he, did he get upset about it or did he end up leaving the area or did he stop serving God because of it? Absolutely not because read the, read the first part of verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while. Paul knew that what God had promised of stay here in Corinth and no one would attack you to hurt you was as good as gold and he he knew that God's word to him was 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 a, was a guarantee and so he he kept on going didn't even let it bother him pretty simple pretty easy was Corinth moving into our kind of our second part of our message was Corinth Paul's last destination for preaching Jesus Christ heavens no 
He was a mover and shaker for Jesus Christ. Look at the rest of verse 18. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. Syria being the end destination that was where his original church was, remember, the church in Antioch. And verse 18, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had, he had his hair cut off at Cancheria, for he, took, he had taken a vow. So his final destination he was sailing for was Antioch. Remember, as I just said, that was his original church. If you remember correctly, that's where he started. That's where he and Barnabas and all these other apostles, or, or other disciples, I should say, were serving God. And then that's where God gave him the original vision, hey, to go out and preach the gospel and to go out and basically be a missionary. This is where all his missionary journeys uh, started from. Luke also, tell, also tells us there in that, in that verse there that he sailed with Priscilla and Aquila. Now, couple things to point out with here. There's a, there's a couple kind of noteworthy things to point out here. First, uh, the way verse 18 read there in the English NKJV in our English rules makes it seem like Paul sailed for Syria. Then he took his vow and had his hair cut in Kentaria after he had already set sail on the sea. Okay, but that is a huge problem. Because there's maps. Just go to your maps. I have a wonderful map that I found on the internet that details out. It's biblical because I've matched it up with the Bible. There's a wonderful map. You can. There's actually some Bibles have maps in the back of them that give Paul's missionary journeys. And this is a problem if he sailed, then he had his hair cut in Kensharia, and then, you know, he moved on, right? This is a problem because the map shows, well, Kensharia is just a little bit... I would say what southwest of Corinth. So, and it's on the same landmass. Okay, this is not a contradiction or a mistake, so that we can't trust it. Because uh, I'll show you in just a minute, which means that Paul took this vow. So he 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 left from Corinth, traveled down to Kentaria, where he took this vow and had his hair cut before he sailed for Syria. Right after he left, right. Kentaria. So is this a problem with the Bible? A contradiction or a mistake so that we can't trust it? Well, absolutely not. The problem in this verse is here because there was a translation error from the Greek to the English. There's always, and, and this, this can be a whole sermon on its own, there, there's always problems when you translate one language from one thing to another. When you go from English to to German or German to, 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 to French or French to Italian. There's always problems in translations because of what we call grammatical rules. Grammatical rules and uh, placements of where things are in certain sentences and so on and so forth. And there's always problems when things arise from one translation to the other. Not making God's word invalid, mind you. Making simply the translator's translation of the way they took it from the Greek and put it in the English. But when we go to the, uh, to the basically literal word-for-word word Greek-to-English translation in a, in a version I love, you can look this version up, it's, it's masterful. It's Young's literal translation. And what he did was he looked at the Greek, he knew Greek, and of course he knew English. And what he did was he, forget about any English rules, he took, if it was the, he put the word the. It was, if it was the word boat, and, 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 and then he put it in English, it was boat. Despite how, when you read the Greek, in, in English, you'd be like, well, that doesn't make sense. Things are out of place, or there's no period here, or there's no comma here. He got rid of all that. And he basically kept the Greek rules of grammar, but just translated the Greek word into English. It's a wonderful translation. Listen to the way the verse reads. And tell me if it doesn't tell you a little clearer, because it does me, that Paul didn't do these things, even though the order is correct. It's one sentence with some dashes, and I'll read you the dashes as I move forward. And Paul, this is Acts 18.18, this is the way it reads from the literal Greek to the English. And Paul, having remained at a good yet, excuse me, and Paul, having remained yet a good many days, comma, having taken leave of the brethren, comma, was sailing to Syria, dot, dot, or, or slash, slash, and with him are Priscilla and Aquilus, dot, dot, having shorn, having shorn his head in Kentaria, for he had a vow. Remember, this is one sentence, and the wording there, having shorn, or having cut 
his hair being a past tense thing that obviously he had his hair shorn before he sailed for Syria. To me, it makes it so much more clear is that the scripture wasn't lying or this Bible, God's word is not flawed. It's just the way the translators decided to put it from the Greek into the English in the NKJV. Even the, the KJV has a little bit better a little bit better translation than that one verse. And it, I just love the way if you dig in, in God's word, you can find these little nuggets like that. So again, no, no contradiction in the Bible, just men's flawed ways that they did some translation. Still, the meaning is the same, but yet we just want to know exactly how things are, and so we find them if we dig. So, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila leave Corinth. Moving forward, to get on to the next little nugget that I got here. Then stop in Kensharia for Paul to take his dangerous vow. Hint, hint, that's the title. Cutting his hair to signify this vow. Then they sail for his home church in Antioch in Syria. Why did Paul take this vow? And why do I call the vow, or any vow for that matter, as the title of the sermon implies, why do I call any vow to God dangerous? I'll get there shortly. Hang on. There's one point I want to make first. So they're headed for Syria, but before they get there, look what happens. Read the first part of verse 9. So they sail from, right, they sail from Kenchuria, not from, not from Corinth, and he came to Ephesus. And what Paul does here, there's something noteworthy that I want to mention, the second thing before I get to the main thrust of the message. Verses 18 and 19 just told us that Paul took Priscilla and Aquila with him as he headed for Syria. And he gave no mention of Silas and Timothy. And in fact, when you read the scripture, Silas and Timothy do not go with him. In this next little journey that he takes, Silas and Timothy don't go with him. Why is this noteworthy? Why, why am I bringing this up? Why, why would this even matter? Well, remember I... I told you I love to teach the Bible. I'm a preacher sometimes too, but I love to teach the Bible. This is noteworthy because Timothy wasn't with him. I already said that, but here's the deal. Timothy ends up becoming the pastor of the Ephesian church. Just see 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. He he becomes the pastor of the Ephesian church, which means that Timothy must have gone to Ephesus at some point in the future to run that church Paul had planted the planted there. And interestingly enough, here's another interesting thing. We don't ever read in scripture that Timothy goes to Ephesus. He doesn't go there with Paul. So how, why did God ever, you know, move in Paul's heart to say, hey, make Timothy the pastor of the Ephesian church when Timothy scripturally didn't even ever go to Ephesians? Strange idea. Thought it was noteworthy. Noteworthy because Again, why would God make him the pastor, never having gone there to, to, you know, and then makes him the pastor? God does some strange things sometimes. Uh, but I tell you this, thanks be to God, he does know what he's doing, even though we may not know what he's doing. Now, before we move on to verse 19, please remember, keep in the front of your mind, Paul goes to Kenshiria, right, to take what God showed me in this message was this dangerous vow to him. As we read on in our scripture, I think we'll have a good idea of what that vow was, but I want you to keep this vow in the front of your domes, in the front of your heads, because it just as is important enough that it was to make it the title of our scripture, it will explain Paul's strange actions in a couple of verses that we see. So, so please take note of this, keep it in the front of your minds, and then let's keep reading in verse 9. Look at what Paul does after they get to Ephesus. Read the rest of verse 19. And he came to Ephesus, and he left them there, would be Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned, with the Jews. So he travels across the Aegean Sea with Priscilla and Aquila without Silas and Timothy, Timothy the eventual Ephesian church pastor. Then he leaves his companions, that would be Priscilla and Aquila, somewhere in Ephesus, right? While he himself goes alone. Well, I don't understand why he does that. I think I might know now. It kind of lines up with the vow, possibly. Which he, while he himself, and, and of course, remember, Luke the recorder would have been with him. He goes into the synagogue to preach Jesus Christ to the Jews as he has done so many times in the past, right? He goes into the synagogue, reasons with, or like I've taught before, gives proof to these Jews in the synagogue that Jesus was the Christ from the scriptures. That's awesome. Paul was so bold to do so, especially after all the times where he had been rejected by the Jews, right? How do these Jews respond to Paul's proving that Jesus was the Christ to them and What does he do when they show their true colors? Well, here's where we get some completely upside-down actions by both our main characters in this account. 
Paul and the Jews in the synagogue. And the reason for our title, Vows Are Dangerous. Read verse 20, and then we're going to pick it apart. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, what? He did not consent. Huh? The text just told us that these Jews were actually receptive to Paul's message of Jesus being the Christ. What? Remember, if they weren't receptive, they would not have asked him to stay longer. So common logic, common sense tells us that they were receptive to the message, right? So I would say that them being receptive to this this message of Paul was totally unforeseen, right? And, And totally unexpected, right? I mean, the excessive idea of, can you stay longer? The only time Paul had seen this kind of idea, this kind of, uh, of, of love for Christ from the Jews was in the Berean church, remember? That was, that was a while back. And really, overall, remember Galatians 2.8, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship of the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. Paul speaking, Paul did not have a successful ministry to the Jews, Some Jews would get saved here and there, but Peter, Paul says out of his mouth, Peter had the much more successful mission to the Jews while Paul did not. So their response was just super unforeseen and unexpected. And I would say it was even unforeseen by Paul. Paul, I don't believe Paul ever expected these Jews to respond to Christ in a positive way. Saying that, What's even more unforeseen, unexpected here, is how our amazing super apostle, on fire for Christ and getting people saved, Apostle Paul, responds to their acceptance of what he preached. It seems as if their being receptive to his preaching to them was totally unexpected and unforeseen to Paul because of what he does there at the very end of verse 20. They ask him to stay. Look at the very last words of verse 20 right before the period. He did not consent. What? What did he just do? He told them, I can't stay? What? Our amazing, on fire for Jesus Christ and getting people saved, our great super apostle, Apostle Paul, just rejected a stay with these Jews who were supernaturally receptive to his proving Jesus Christ to them. Now, doesn't, that, doesn't that sound a little weird in your mind? I, mean, I, I had never read this in this scripture before. And as I'm doing this message, I was, I was totally unexpected for this little curveball here. I didn't even, I mean, the, the title blew me away. I was totally blown away by what I saw here. Because we're talking about the same Paul that wrote in Romans 9.3 that he would rather himself be accursed so that his brethren, according to the flesh, Jews like those in Ephesus, be saved. And that means have eternal life in heaven. And to these Jews who were receptive, that wanted him to stay more, he just denied staying and helping these Jews who were supernaturally receptive to his message of Jesus being the Messiah Christ, to help them come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is totally anti-typical for his hair, for his for Paul's character and for his heart for the lost. Totally. You just is like, is this the same Paul that we've been reading about since, you know, Acts chapter whatever when he came in? Because the Paul that we read about, and if they ask him to stay or somebody says, hey, can you preach longer? He stays. In fact, in Corinth, the people had asked him there in Corinth, hey, can you stay a while? And he stayed for a year and a half. So here, the same Apostle Paul says, I can't stay. And these Jews are like, hey, please stay. We want to know more kind of thing. Then next, he goes on ahead in verse 21. Look what he does. But he took leave of them, saying, and this blows my mind. I must by all means keep this coming fast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sails for Ephesus. He leaves. He leaves these Jews who were actually receptive to Jesus being the Christ, and he heads off for Syria, heads off for Jerusalem, giving the reason I believe he took the vow. It seems to be that what he says there that he took the vow because he wanted to keep some upcoming feast in Jerusalem. He, he, you take a vow because you want to show God, hey, God, I love you, and you know, I want to do this, this thing for you, so I want to make this promise to you. God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this vow, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this feast in Jerusalem. So I, I believe that was the vow he took. 
Then he sails away with some crappy garbage contingent promise to them that, oh, if God wills, I'll come back to you and I'll talk to you some more. Did you happen to read between the lines and figure out why Paul's vow to God to keep the upcoming feast in Jerusalem was dangerous? I'll I'll tell you if you didn't. I believe God showed me here that maybe, number one, not sure Paul expected God Almighty to have him preach anywhere else after he took his vow to keep the coming feast in Jerusalem. I just don't think Paul saw that. Not sure Paul actually believed, hey, hey, hey God, I'm taking this vow for you, and then you know what, I'm going right to Jerusalem and I'm going to have that feast. It's either that or, number two, he knew God wanted him to preach in, in Ephesus, but he didn't expect the Jews there to be receptive to his message. So he figured... And taking the vow, he figured, hey, I'm taking this vow, I'm going to go to Ephesus, I'm going to preach to the Jews, and then you know what, they're going to kick me out, they're going to want to stone me, I'm going to have to leave anyway, no problems, no obstructions, making it to Jerusalem. One of the two, there there are really no other reasons that our super apostle, Paul, who loved and served God Almighty and Jesus Christ more than anyone ever, and loved people so much ever willing, remember, to give up his eternal life so that his fellow Jews could be saved, wow, would have turned down an opportunity to preach more to those who were actually receptive to the one uh, of him proving Jesus Christ. Wow, his, his proving Jesus Christ messages. Why was the vow dangerous? This, this God hit me hard with this one. I hope he hits you hard with this one too. Had Paul not taken this dangerous vow... He wouldn't have passed up their offer to stay and teach uh, them more about Jesus Christ. Unless, of course, God Almighty told him to go. But yet, we never have read in Scripture once, and we, we won't ever read in Scripture where somebody's actually receptive to Jesus being the Christ, and God says to the missionary, hey, move on, it's, you're done here. I just, it's, not, it's, anti, it's anti-God, anti-typical. God, if I was out there ministering on the streets, and I was having a, and I've actually had it happen to me before. I've been on the streets and I've been in a conversation where the person was receptive and we're, you know, we're talking five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, four hours. I've had three hour conversations about Jesus Christ with people before, but they were receptive. I I never once felt the Holy Spirit of God move me and say, hey, Ed. You know, this one's done. You, you get out of here. <laughs> Never. Now the devil in the mind's going, oh, get, oh you got to get home. You got to take care of that business. Oh, you, you were supposed to do that project. You were, that's distraction. That's not God. God, God would never tell somebody that, that his soldier that's working for him with somebody that's receptive to his message, hey, move on. You, just, you know what? Just forget about it. Just, just go on down the road. He would never. So God would never do that. And then think of this again. Paul actually left a whole synagogue full of unsaved Jews. They weren't saved. They wanted him to stay for a longer period and to tell them about Jesus Christ. Paul left them. He left them in a position, think of this, that if they would have died before he came back, Scripture doesn't ever record him coming back, FYI, they would have gone to hell. So Paul left them hell-bound, without his help, and they were receptive. Does this sound like the same Apostle Paul that wrote not Romans 9.3? 9.3 again, For I wish, that, I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And him saying, hey, I'd rather go to hell and let these guys be saved. Does that sound like what he did here? Does that sound like our real Apostle Paul? Not at all. And the only logical reason, the only thing Scripture tells us here as to why I can understand why Paul would have left these unsaved, seeking Jews in this Ephesian synagogue was because he took this dangerous vow to God. A vow to God or a promise to God that he would keep a certain upcoming feast in Jerusalem. Did he, did he ever make his feast? Sadly, just a blip of an info. Look at verses 22-23, our last two verses of today. And when he had landed and when he had landed at Caesarea, and he gone up to greet the church, or greeted the church, that would be the church in Jerusalem, as Jerusalem is just a short distance from Caesarea. Uh, this, is be, this would be where he kept that feast. Remember, he was wanted to keep the upcoming feast in Jerusalem, uh, but we actually never read of him keeping the feast. 
Now, that's how small of a, uh, of a blip. The blip was, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, next he went down to Antioch. That, that was it. We never even read him keeping the feast. He, he had made this vow. He was bound and determined to get to Jerusalem no matter what because he had taken this vow, which is what a vow is. I'll get to what a vow is here in just a minute. And so after he had spent some time there, this is how little of a blip, verse 23, our last verse, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Perga in order, strengthening all the disciples. So he kept this promise to God to be in Jerusalem. Then he goes on about his business into some other regions to speak to the Christian disciples and the churches to encourage them. Coincidentally, again, we never read of him going back to the Ephesian synagogue to speak to the Jews more and prove Jesus Christ to them some more. As he had started, as he said, if God willed, I don't know, I think maybe he might have been too embarrassed to go back because, hey, I you know, cut my hair, took this vow, had to rush to Jerusalem only to keep this feast, and I think Paul maybe felt bad even. But Paul takes this dangerous vow, and the vow causes him to not be able to love the lost Jews like Jesus Christ wanted him to. Vows are dangerous. What is a vow anyway? What is a vow? You may want to know. A vow is a votive obligation. What the script, what the what the concordance says, strongest concordance says. Well, what is a votive obligation? It's a rock solid, unwavering unbreakable promise that the person that's giving the vow gives in his heart to God that someone, uh, like I said, somebody who loves God will give to God uh, that they're either going to do something or not do something. God, I promise you that I'll never do such and such again. Uh, God, I, I promise you that from now on, the rest of my time in my life, I will do this I vow to you, God. I, I give you my word. I, I vow to you. This is, this is it, Lord. This is an unbreakable, rock-solid, unbreakable, unwavering promise. This is, this is what a vow is. This is a really strong, strong, super strong, unbreakable promise to God. Why are vows dangerous? Well, there are so many reasons why in a case-by-case basis, but at the core of why they're dangerous is just one main reason. Uh, that reason. If you take a vow before God, or a votive obligation, a solid, unbreakable promise to God to do something, or to not to do something, even if there's a time limit on it, He expects you to keep it in an unbreakable, no excuses, solid way. Do you understand why this is dangerous just yet? The way God expects you to keep your vow or your votive obligation to Him includes the idea that if you break it, you've sinned. You're a sinner. You've given God your word, your strongest word ever. And, and really in, in humanity, the Bible doesn't say this, but in humanity, a man, a, a true good man of his word is only known that he's good by, by keeping his word. So if you don't keep your word, you're really worthless because it's your word. It's all you got. You know, it's your promise. When somebody gives you their promise and, and they go, I promise no matter what, I'll do this thing, and then, they don't, and then they don't keep it, that person is really a worthless promise giver. They're, they're really good for, they're really worthless. They don't keep their word, right? Well, God sees this as sin when we make this kind of vow to him, and then we don't keep it. If you make this kind of specific promise to God, then you commit yourself to him with unrelenting, unwavering, total commitment. Uh, the explanation of the vow, biblical vow, would be a man named Jephthah. He was a judge that God called to serve him to deliver the children of Israel from one of the you know, conquering kings because they, they had gotten themselves trapped underneath you know, some sin and God allowed them to be given over in the hand of a king. And in, Je- and, and in Judges 11, 30 and 31, Jephthah makes this promise, this vow to God. And he says, if you indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. This means that whatever comes out of his door when he comes home, if God gave him the victory over these people, he'd kill it. And he'd sacrifice whatever came out of his door for the first time you know, to the Lord. The outcome of any kind of vow, which makes all vows dangerous, Judges 11, 34, 35, Jephthah comes home, and he's rejoicing in the Lord, and he's so excited, he, oh, praise God, I got, 
and the first thing that comes out his door is his daughter. Wow. Well, guess what? Jephthah just gave an unbreakable promise to God that whatever entered, exited the door of his house when he got home from if, if God let him win, that he would sacrifice it and kill it to the Lord. And his daughter just came out. Well, the daughter knew and Jephthah knew. You do not break a vow to God. You do not break a, a vow. You, not a vow. Not a vow. God, help me to do this thing. Or God, you know, I don't want to do this thing. And then you blow it. Oh, Lord, help me to do better next time. But a vow? God, I promise, all the, no matter, I'd rather die and kill my son. It's a vow. I promise, I'll, promise I'll do it. You don't break it. So Jephthah ends up killing his daughter and sacrificing his daughter as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice to the Lord. How sick. How sad. And God, vows are dangerous. Paul took his vow so serious in Acts 18 that maybe it wasn't killing or sacrificing his daughter or his son, or I don't know if he had any, to the Lord, but he actually departed from the same unsaved people that he would have traded his eternal life for in Romans 9 without helping them find eternal life by staying with them, continuing to prove Jesus Christ was the actual Messiah because he foolishly took a dangerous vow to God. His vow could have cost them not only, the, not their lives, because you know what? People can only die once. But his vow could have costed them going to hell, which is way worse than just losing my life. It's somebody's eternity. I mean, think about it. And the reason Paul had to keep this vow, despite the underlying love he had for the Jews that he was witnessing to, was because he knew that unless he was to die, literally like, you know, so he's sailing, he made this vow, he's sailing for, you know, Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden the, the, the ship crashes, sinks, and he dies. He know unless he died, he better fulfill that vow unrelentingly, unwaveringly, this votive obligation type of solid, rock-solid promise. Unless he died, he better do it. And if you think that Jephthah or Paul simply took the seriousness of the vows overboard, like, oh, they, you know, you don't have to keep vows that strong. You know, you say vows are dangerous. I can make vows. It doesn't matter if I keep them. Listen to what Jesus Christ said about a vow. Matthew 5, 33-37. Again, you've heard it said on the days of old that you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Oh, same thing. It's a devout rock. I'm Lord, this is what I'm going to do for you, and I, I won't do anything else. And, and Jesus said, you should, heard it said of old, don't swear, don't do that falsely. Don't make that kind of promise to God and do it with not a pure heart. With, do it falsely. Don't do that. But 34, but I say to you, in fact, do not swear at all. Jesus just said, don't give any vows. They're dangerous. I mean, he didn't say that, but we know by what we see today, vows are dangerous. And Jesus just said, don't do it. Don't swear at all. Neither by heaven, uh, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor so you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Just be a man of your word, but don't make a vow, for whatever is more than these, even if it's a vow, which she's, that's the context of the situation here, the, the scripture, is from the evil one. So vows, really, God looks at them and says, they're so dangerous, they're really not from me. They're from the evil one. Jesus just Christ just said that this because he knew and he still knows that vows are dangerous because God expects those who take an oath or a vow, same thing, to be truly bound by what they say. He expects the one that takes the vow to carry out their vow before him no matter what it is or how ridiculous it is. Remember Jephthah, uh, even Paul, he expects you to do it. And if Jesus Christ told us that we should not take an oath or vow to God, saying that this practice is from the evil one, if that doesn't tell you that vows are dangerous, well, I don't know what will. I don't know what will. My listener, whatever you do, do not take a vow or a solid, rock-solid promise, unwavering, unrelenting vow or promise before God, because in doing so, you really will cause yourself spiritual harm. 
Now, I say all these things about vows being dangerous today because shamefully, and I do say it shamefully, and the Bible says admit your sin one another together, uh, but I have taken some vows before God in the past in the last 18 years when I was a little bit more ignorant on Scripture and not, you know, didn't quite know the Bible as well and, you know, stupid me. And, and I've been walking with the Lord and, and unfortunately I've broke a couple. I've broke them. I've broke them. And I knew it. I knew it. Now, you could be judgmental right now, and that's all right. You can. I was wrong. You could say, well, if you took a vow and you, you knew it was rock solid, you, you ought to kept it. You, you ought to not let it go, and you'd be right. And I, and I didn't, and so I sinned. And, and, I, and, I, and, and I, again, only a couple times, but only once even. It's not, not even once is acceptable. Not even once. And, and the example of how I got caught up, and I'm going to give you an example of how you don't get caught up either. Oh, God, you know, it kind of starts like this. I vow to you, you know, your heart's going, never again, Lord, never. Or I will. I, I vow to you that I will never again do such and such, or, or I will for sure, Lord. I promise. Forever, I'll, no matter what, I'll do this certain thing for the whole rest of my life. And in your sincerity, you make this vow to God. Hey, I'm doing it till I die. You know, Lord, or I'm not going to do this till I die. I love you, and I want to show you, and I'm zealous for you, Lord. I'm make this vow. Right? So God sees this because he sees things like this. These things get God's attention. Then he expects you to keep it, never doing or always doing what you vowed that you would or would not do. And I, I personally think that as you're vowing to God, as we're vowing to God, God's doing the facepalm. Oh, man, don't do just like Jephthah, man. Remember Jephthah, oh, man, like Paul. I think God's doing a facepalm. God doesn't want you to do a vow. He just wants you to take a vow. So, so let's say you, you do this. You say this thing. And you say, oh, then let's say one year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years go by. And you've forgotten about your vow. It's not even in your mind no more because, you know, circumstances have changed and for whatever reason, things have changed. You know, you changed your mind in life. You know, you're a different type of person now. You're more holy. You're more different. You know, you weren't this or that or whatever. Now you show God you love him in different ways. And the moment you think, and then you think, well, yeah, I'm going to just do this thing. And, you know, you had forgotten about it. Well, the moment you even begin to do it or, or stop doing what you told you, God you would do or, or not do, even one time, God's going to remind you of that vow. He has me. And, and, but in your human mind and weakness, you, you put your flawed mind in action and you think to yourself, did I really tell God that I wouldn't do that for the rest of my life? Because, you know, that was a year ago. That was five years ago. Did I really? Golly, did I write it down? And you look and you didn't write it down. So you're like, oh, man, did I really? Or, or, or you think, well, God, I, and maybe you consent. Well, Lord God, I know I took that vow, but, you know, that was X amount of years ago, you know, and things have changed, Lord. You know, things, you know, life, and me, you know, I'm not the same person. I'm, I'm, you know, yada, 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 yada. But either way, you go ahead on and you stupidly do that thing you promised God that you wouldn't do or you stop doing the thing that you told God you would do. But you see, whether or not you remember you took that vow or not or whether you explain it away with some garbage excuse, all it doesn't matter, you see, because God remembers. He don't forget things like vows, right? And he doesn't, he doesn't forget that you took that vow. And if you break it, again, you just sinned. And he sees you as committing this sin if you continue to do it as an ongoing sin. This is, you took a vow. You said no more. God says, you took a vow. You keep it. I'm holding you to your word. And if you don't, you're no good. You're, you are worthless. You, you are not a keeper of your word. These two have sadly, why in the past, again, I've failed a couple times. Now, what I mean by I failed a couple times is, is I broke my vow and I had to recommit. After I broke it, and I know I still broke it, but that's why I'm getting in this next part. And the worst part of this is once God convicts you so badly about you, your sin of breaking that vow, after you begin to do the thing that God told you, or that you told God you would never do again your whole life, or you stop doing the thing that you told God you'd do for the rest of your life, then if he's truly your God, your master, he has a very powerful spiritual way of speaking to you about it. You know that if you're born again, what I'm talking about, because it's just something like a child of God thing. And then you get this, you break it or you do the thing you said you would do forever. You stop doing it and you get this like 
terrible like taste in your body and your mind and your heart and you just oh wow you just know golly i screwed up and it's just it's unexplainable that if you're not born again and you don't know what i'm talking about it's like so then you have to repent in dust and ashes and you must begin to keep that vow again because you know you broke it but god says hey you said to the end of your life so you gotta do it you gotta do it which means that you then do it again, but you have to keep that restriction on your life for the rest of your life. Maybe it wasn't even a restriction that God wanted you to do in the first place. Wow. But then you got to do something because you promised God you'd do it for the rest of your life. It could hurt people. It could hurt you. Jephthah, Paul, vows make for dangerous, dangerous sinful religion. God calls his kids to live a certain kind of holy lifestyle. And this lifestyle includes you abstaining from sinfulness and living in God's holy ways. Well, breaking vows as a practice of a way of lifestyle is living in sinfulness. And the Bible's clear in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 that anyone who practices unrighteousness or sin, 1 Corinthians 6, 6 9, do not, do not know that un, the unrighteous, and you become unrighteous when you make a vow, but you don't keep it, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then God sees you as unrighteous because you keep breaking this vow. Ladies and gentlemen, don't take vows. Vows are dangerous. Vows are dangerous religion before God. And Jesus said that vows, oaths, vows, same thing, are dangerous. He says they're from the evil one. God knows how dangerous they are. He's seen people. So if you really want to show God you really want to do something or you really don't want to do something because you love him, declare a fast. That's biblical. We see, the, we see people fasting in the Bible all over the place. A fast is like, hey, God, I, I'm going to give up this one thing to you for a week. You know, Lord, I'm going to, you know what, Lord, I, I realize I'm, I really got an addiction to coffee. Or, or there was one time with me, I, I could not go a day without thinking, I know it sounds stupid, but I couldn't go a day without thinking about Pepsi. And I'm not product plugging here. I couldn't go a day without this certain soft drink. And so... I, I just would fiend and, and, and just desire this soft drink all the time. And yet, one time God was like, do you, you love that soft drink more than me? And I was like, wow, Lord, you know, you know what, Lord, I'm going to show you I love you. And I, you know, for one week or, or for one month, Lord, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast that thing to you and I'm going to show you I love you. And this is something, fasts are good. Fasts from things that we're consumed with are a good way to show God that we love him. But a fast is not a vow. A fast is not an unbreakable, you know, insincerity in your heart of hearts. I'm going to do this thing. I I won't ever do it again. You know, that's not that. A fast is just a certain time that you give off from yourself and just say, you know what, I'm going to show you, Lord, that I love you by not doing this one thing for a week. And I need a break from it anyway. I'm becoming too consumed with it. But do not take vows. People take vows because they want to show God they're sincere toward Him, but vows are dangerous. So be careful what you commit to. Be careful what comes out of your lips. Jesus Christ said, Matthew 12, 36, that we will be judged by every idle word which comes from our mouths. And people, be careful. Don't take vows. Vows are dangerous, and they make for dangerous religion. Fast declare a fast, a temporary time of, you know, something you're going to abstain from or not, but it's not a solid, rock-solid promise unto God. It's just a fast. It's just a time separated from something, a short time, and it's, again, it's not as different from a vow. Please, 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 don't take vows. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much, Lord God, for the wisdom that your word gives us, Lord God. We, we thank you, Lord God, for the things that you tell us to do, Lord, because we know that they're good. If you tell us to do them, then they must be good. And Lord, we thank you for the things that you tell us not to do. For Lord, we know that if you tell us not to do something, that's not good either. And so, Lord, if we love you and we truly are yours or we want to be yours, Lord, then, Lord, we ought to show you that we love you. And the only way we could show you that we love you is by looking at your word and seeing what pleases you in your word and then doing those things. So, Lord God, help us to do only the things in our lives and in our hearts and to you and our actions of our bodies, Lord, that show you that we love you. 
Lord God, and help us, Lord God, help us and remind us, do not make these votive promises to you. Do not make these dedicated, for sure, guaranteed, I promise you I won't do it unless, or no matter what, Lord, these are dangerous. Show us, Lord God, that these are not from you. Jesus, you said, os, these these promises that you make, they're from the devil. So, Lord, please, help us, help us, help us, help us, help us. Help us only to walk in your ways, doing the things that you want that are pleasing unto you. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we praise you. We ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.